Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and the kingdom of God has come upon you, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first finds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. The two books of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, tell the story of David's life. In 1 Samuel, if you're familiar with that, that's actually the book that we're studying in our evening services. Come tonight and Andrew will be preaching from 1 Samuel. Uh, the whole book of 1 Samuel tells us about David's rise toward becoming king, but it stops short of him actually becoming king. 2 Samuel, though, we read about the reign of David as king. Well, in, in 1 Samuel, if you look at the very last story in 1 Samuel, about David in that particular book, in 1 Samuel chapter 30, you find David at his absolute lowest point. Right before he becomes the king, is exalted as king, David has actually descended to the very lowest point of his life up to that point. Now, before I explain what happened there, let me give a little bit of context to understand the great fall that David has taken to get to that point. Uh, David was the one who was anointed as the next king over Israel. Now, there was still a king, Saul, but he was anointed as the next king of Israel. David was the child prodigy who took down the great giant Goliath with just a sling and some stones. David was the one who was favored by King Saul for a time, brought on to be the minister of music to Saul. David was the one who also had the favor of Saul because he married one of the daughters of Saul, and he was the best friend of the son of Saul, Jonathan. David was the one who had all of this going for him, then if you know the story of 1 Samuel, you know that very quickly that all begins to unravel. Because David, even though he is the great warrior, killing his tens of thousands on the battlefield, having all of this favor in the court of King Saul, David suddenly falls out of favor of King Saul. Saul sees that David is gaining more favor than Saul, and so Saul begins to turn against David. And the murderous wrath of Saul is directed toward David so that David must flee. And as David flees, one of the things that we have read about recently in Matthew, earlier in this very chapter, in Matthew 12, uh, verses 3 through 4, uh, one of the points in David's life, he went to the house of uh, Ahithophel, or, or excuse me, Abiathar, 
um, in, in the, in, or Ahimelech, excuse me, I got all the names wrong, in, in, in the priest in Nob. And when he went to Nob, there was nothing for David to eat. He suffered by having nothing to eat. And eventually, when um, Ahimelech gave David the bread to eat, the bread that only the priests were supposed to eat, well, Saul eventually found that out and murdered Ahimelech and the other priests there. Not only does David have to flee from Saul, but everyone around knows that not only will Saul insist on killing David, but Saul will murder anyone who helps David in any way. Now, through this time, we're told that David is not only on the run with his mighty men, but he also gathers to him a crowd, not the best and the brightest, not a dream team to enhance David's army to protect him against Saul, but really the lowest. We read that David gathered to himself in 1 Samuel 22, verse 2, everyone who is in distress, everyone who is in debt, everyone who is bitter in soul, gathered together with David. David is going along, he's fleeing from Saul, he's bringing along this ragtag group of the down and out, he's chased with the murderous wrath of Saul, and that's what brings him then eventually to Philistia, if you know that story, he's in exile in Philistia. Eventually, the Philistines cast him out because they can't trust him. Then eventually, we come to 1 Samuel 30, which, as I said, is the very lowest point in his life. All of this has happened. And in 1 Samuel 30, David and his mighty men discover uh, that a raiding band of Amalekites have taken David's goods and David's family and also the family of the mighty men. David has lost everything, the favor of Saul. He's on the run. He has to care for all of this ragtag crew of down and outs. Uh, People are being murdered around him who help him. He's even been deported from Philistia, and now his family has been taken. Not only his, but those of his mighty men. And so that his mighty men even turn against David. The one rock that David could depend upon throughout this time were the men around him who were his army, and they even turned against David. We read that they wanted to stone David with stones. Again, David, who was at the height of his life early on in his career, has descended lower and lower and lower in his suffering until he gets to this absolute lowest point. What does he do? Well, in 1 Samuel 30, verse 8, we read that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Excuse me, that's 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. And so at that point, David inquires of the Lord, and the Lord sends him to go after the Amalekites. And when he comes across the Amalekites, he comes upon a group of people who are eating and drinking. They're they're partying. They're dancing. They've taken advantage of the hapless Israelites and have stolen all of their goods and all of their people. Well, David and his mighty men rise up. They kill nearly all of these Amalekites. Only a few escape take back their goods, and they rescue every single one of the members of their family, their wives, their sons, their daughters. Why do I tell you that whole story? Because in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is at pains. He's going out of his way to make one particular point, namely that Jesus is the son of David. That comes up in this passage here. It's one of the very first things we learn about Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll talk about that in a moment. And as the son of David, Matthew wants to make us think back to the life of David. Think about the ways in which David suffered just as Jesus must suffer. Think about the captivity of David's people and the way that David rose up to rescue, to plunder from from the Amalekites, those who were in captive. And that tells us something about the life of Jesus, of what we see here, that Jesus is the one who liberates his own people from captivity, the plunder from captivity not of the Amalekites, but of Satan himself. 
Our big idea as we come to this particular story is that just as David rescued captives from uh, their captors, so Jesus is plundering Satan's house. That's our big idea, that Jesus is plundering Satan's house. A three-part story sermon this morning. Number one, we have blaspheming the Son of Man, blaspheming the Son of Man in verses 22 through 27. Number two, binding the strong man, binding the strong man in verses 28 through 29. And then number three, blaspheming the Spirit in verses 30 through 32, blaspheming the Spirit. So let's first look at verses 22 through 27, this first section, blaspheming the Son of Man. Now, if you remember where we are in our story in the Gospel of Matthew, there are many parallels to David's life, where he was suffering more and more. Uh, Back in verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, Jesus, aware of the murderous wrath of the rulers of his people, David had to face the murderous wrath of Saul, Jesus had to face the murderous wrath of the rulers of his people, the Pharisees. Jesus, verse 15, aware of this, withdrew from there. David was on the run, so Jesus had to be on the run, withdrawing from there. And we read, and many followed Jesus, many followed him. And again, these weren't the best and the brightest, the strongest, who could really strengthen David or Jesus' cause. Just as David cared for those who were in distress, those who were in debt, those who were bitter in soul, so Jesus had those follow him who had great needs. And so we read that Jesus healed them all. In the passage that we're looking at today, Jesus is still healing those down and outs. As he's on the run, just as his forefather David had been on the run, Jesus is now healing a man who is demon-oppressed, a demon-oppressed man who was then blind and mute. This problem wasn't so much a physical problem, although it had physical manifestations of the problem. The root cause of this problem was spiritual, that he was oppressed by demons. And so they brought this man, Jesus, to heal him. And we read that that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw in verse 22. Now, notice what then the crowd asks in response to this. They're seeing Jesus heal this man. And so this is the question they ask in verse 23. All the people were amazed and said, can this be son of David? Again, that's all the reason I've been telling you about the story of David, because that's what's on their mind. When they see Jesus acting in this way, that's the question that comes to their mind. Now, whether we might ask a different set of questions, how powerful might this man be? What else can we do? Uh, That might be on our mind. Their question was, can this be the son of David? Now, again, I wanted to remind you, this is something Matthew has been trying to tell us from the very beginning. It's literally the first thing that we were told about Jesus in Matthew 1, verse 1. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of David. Then in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, two men came along who declared this. They said, Jesus, son of David. What was so interesting about them is that these two were blind men. Blind men saw what everyone else up to that point could not. Jesus of David. And here, now that Jesus is openly healing these people who have such great needs, especially under the tyranny and oppression and captivity of Satan, they look at him and they say, can this be son of David? If someone can do this, if someone can liberate captives to Satan himself, might he be the long-awaited Messiah? Might he be the son of David? The Pharisees hear this. We read in verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they have a very different response. 
they want to stop the people from thinking this way. And so they attribute the source of Jesus' power to a very different place. They say, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, this man casts out demons. What's very interesting about this, they really can't deny that there is a great source of power working behind Jesus. They don't even try to deny that. They're very clear about that. They acknowledge that up front. What they do instead is to question the source of Jesus' power by saying that he is the son of Beelzebul. It's only by the power of Beelzebul, the power of Satan, that he's able to cast out these demons. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus makes his first argument to refute this. He says this is not at all the case. And what's interesting about what Jesus says is essentially he's saying, look, if you're saying that Satan is the one who's given me the power to cast out Satan, that would mean that Satan has empowered me to destroy the kingdom of Satan. This kingdom divided itself cannot. If I've been empowered by Satan to cast out Satan, then Satan's kingdom will be laid waste. He will be divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? They say this in haste. Well, he must be doing this by the power of Beelzebub, but they haven't thought this through. It makes absolutely no sense why Satan would empower Jesus to destroy the kingdom of Satan. The second argument Jesus makes against what they have said comes in verse 27. Jesus says, and if I, uh, or if, if, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But the Pharisees had forgotten about was their own sons, those who were on their side, so to speak, are doing the same thing. They were also trying to cast out demons. And so if on the one hand, they were saying that Jesus is only doing this because he is empowered by Satan, well, what does that mean about their disciples? What we see here very clearly is that the Pharisees are not attacking what Jesus does. They are rather attacking Jesus. They are not attacking what Jesus does. They are rather attacking Jesus. Now, later, Jesus is going to characterize this in part as blaspheming the Son of Man, as speaking a word against the Son of Man. But before we get to that section, the first section, we have to observe, in this section, we have to observe first a parallel between the opposition of the Pharisees to the Son of David and the opposition of Saul to David. Remember, Jesus is the Son of David. His life, in many ways, resembles David. The idea being that he is like his father David, especially being the heir to the throne of David. He's going to be a very powerful king. If you look back to the story of David's life, it wasn't a king who just soared from height to height to greater heights. David had to go through his own suffering, just as Jesus is going through right now. Well, one remarkable thing as we think about Saul's opposition to David was that Saul consistently cast what he was doing against David as a battle of good and evil. This is always happening in every age. Those who are most opposed to the purposes of God cast what they are doing as a battle of good versus evil. They don't say we're doing the evil thing and we like it. They're saying, in fact, it's God's people who are doing what is evil. We are rather doing what is good. And we definitely see that with Saul. When Saul's son, Jonathan, tried to hide and defend his best friend, David, Saul accused Jonathan of extraordinary evil. In 1 Samuel 20, verse 30, He said to his son, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Your mother was extraordinarily evil to have such an evil son as you. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse, that is David, your own shame and the shame of your mother's nakedness? 
In other words, it's not only a shameful thing for you to be born of such a wicked woman to do the wicked things that you are doing, but in fact, your evil is rising to such a great height in defending David that you have even brought shame on your perverse and rebellious mother. That's the argument that Saul is making, that Jonathan, by defending David, is doing an extraordinary kind of evil. And then Saul adds on to this in the next verse, to justify his wrath against David as love and care for Jonathan. He says, for as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Be reasonable here, Jonathan. I'm trying to look out for you. I'm trying to care for you. I'm being a good father to you. Therefore, send and bring him to me. He shall surely die. What Saul said was that Saul, I am good. David is evil. And Jonathan, right now, you have a choice to do good or to do evil. Cast the whole battle as one of good versus evil. He gets everything upside down. Just as the Pharisees said that they were opposing Jesus because he broke the Sabbath. They were opposing Jesus because he was casting out demons. And they were casting it as a matter of good versus evil. But everything had been turned upside down, put backward. It happened in David's day against David. And it's happening now in Jesus' day with his own rulers, the rulers, the Pharisees, who were in authority in Israel. What's happening here then is that we should not miss that in all of this, the Pharisees have inadvertently acknowledged that Jesus does indeed wield great power. As much as they're trying to twist it and trying to say that the power comes from Satan, they nevertheless are acknowledging that Jesus wields great power. Now, the Pharisees are certainly quite wrong about that particular point. They're wrong to attribute Jesus' power to the devil, but even they can't deny his power altogether. The next question that Jesus is going to answer is, well, the power doesn't come from Beelzebul, from Satan. Where then does your power come from? Now, if the first thing that Jesus did was say, my power does not come from Satan, that wouldn't make any sense. The next thing that Jesus is going to do is to build a positive case to explain where exactly his power does come from. And this gets us to this fascinating section of Scripture in verses 28 through 29, where Jesus speaks of binding the strong man, binding the strong man. Now, in verse 28, Jesus says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What Jesus is claiming is that he is casting out demons, not by the power of Beelzebub, but by the power of the Spirit of God. And that action then is a sign of the advance of the kingdom of God in this world. Now, Jesus says, if it is by the Spirit of God, um, William Hendrickson, the commentator, points out that if is not a hypothetical, what if I were to cast out demons? Because in fact, he's just done that. But rather, he's saying, if, as is actually the case, I am casting out these evil spirits, these demons, by the Spirit of God. And by this, you know that the kingdom of God is coming into this world. When Jesus speaks about the Spirit of God, he, the second person of the Trinity, is speaking of the third person of the Trinity. And the Spirit of God, if you look from the very beginning at creation all the way through scriptures, the Spirit of God is portrayed as God's personal agent of power in the world. When you read about the power of God in the world, the Spirit is the one who wields that power in the world. That's the role that the Spirit took up in our plan of redemption. The kingdom of God, then, is what the Spirit of God brings in. And notice that the Satan's kingdom is portrayed as being laid waste, being unable to stand in the face of the advance 
of the kingdom of God. And the reason for this is because this new kingdom is coming to drive out, to displace, to expel Satan's kingdom from the world. Now, normally in Matthew, if you're aware of maybe some of the uniquenesses of Matthew, you may know that very often when Matthew, uh, we read about the kingdom in Matthew, we read about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is always talking about the kingdom of heaven. Here's one of the rare exceptions where we read about the kingdom of God in the gospel of Matthew. Now, there's a reason for this, because here, Matthew is really driving at what Jesus is talking about, about the personal source of the power behind Jesus. This is the kingdom of God, because God's spirit, through the Son of God, is bringing this kingdom into the world. This is the kingdom, not merely of heaven in a general sense, but personally brought about by God himself, the second and third person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, son of David, the power of the Holy Spirit. But then in verse 29, Jesus makes largely the same point, but he makes that point in such a more fascinating way. It's not just about one kingdom displacing another kingdom. Look at what he says in verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first finds the strong man? And indeed, he may plunder his house. So again, this is largely the same discussion. Here, the strong man must refer to Satan. It's not that the strong man, Satan, is empowering Jesus. Rather, Jesus came to bind the strong man. Satan, the strong man, is bound. And also, the idea of this house, that we would refer to the world enslaved by sins. And then when we get to this idea of plundering goods, well, clearly, Jesus is talking about liberating sinners from captivity to sin. But remember, this is also what David did. In 1 Samuel 30, when David went to rescue his plundered people from the uh, uh, plundering Amalekites, David plundered not only his household, but his goods from the Amalekites in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And David is doing the exact same thing, just not to the tyranny of the Amalekites, to the tyranny of Satan. But again, there's a new element here. What Jesus talks about as he expands upon his earlier point from the previous verse, he says, this can't happen unless he first binds strong men. The strong man must be bound in order for someone to come and plunder the strong man's house. Now, what would this binding of the strong man refer to? Well, in part, certainly this refers to the whole of Jesus' redemptive work. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to bind Satan. And indeed, Jesus has bound Satan so that Satan is bound Satan can no longer go out into the world to deceive all the nations of the world. The reason the gospel has come around the world to Omaha, Nebraska, is because Satan can no longer hold the nations under his tyranny as he did before. That's partially in view here. But I think it is far better. Uh, Brandon Crow particularly makes this book, in, in, or point in one of his books that he writes. But what Jesus is talking about is a reference to Jesus' victory back at the temptation in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. If you remember, at the end of Matthew chapter 3, Jesus was baptized. And before Jesus does anything in his public ministry, Jesus is immediately led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Jesus then is put in the exact same position as Adam had been so many years before. Jesus is out with Satan, tempted by Satan toward sin. Now, Adam, in the past, failed. Adam failed, and because Adam failed, the entire human race descended from Adam by ordinary generation. 
was plunged under the tyranny, under the bondage, under the dominion of Satan because of Adam's sin. But when Jesus is tempted by Satan, three times Satan comes and tempts Jesus, Jesus every time is able to resist that temptation. The power that Satan had over Adam because Adam had failed, same power is no longer something that Jesus or that Satan has over Jesus. And so because Satan doesn't have power over Jesus, Jesus binds the strongman. Satan doesn't have power over him. And so after that, immediately, after Jesus is tempted in the wilderness and succeeds there, immediately he begins his public ministry, preaching, teaching, healing the sick, casting out demons. Not that Jesus has power because he's dependent on Satan. It's rather Jesus has power over Satan. He has bound Satan because he has mastered him. And therefore, Jesus can plunder the goods of the strong man. You know, it's as if Jesus encountered Satan celebrating his victory over the human race, partying like the Amalekites were singing and eating and drinking like the Amalekites when they were celebrating their victory over David's people. But Jesus comes in and like David, like David destroyed the works of the Amalekites to claim back his household. So Jesus, in defeating Satan's temptation, not vulnerable to Satan. Satan is vulnerable to Jesus. And Satan now has no other tricks up his sleeve. He can't tempt Satan into bondage. What else is Satan going to do? He is helpless to stop Jesus from plundering his house, from plundering his goods. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is bringing the kingdom of God into the world. And in that, Jesus has bound Satan. And in that, Jesus is now plundering his household. But we need to say more here. We go back to what the Pharisees had originally said. The Pharisees were wrong to attribute Jesus' power to Satan. That's clear. They were all, but they were not wrong to acknowledge that there are only two possible sides in this battle. They said if Jesus, in their opinion, was not of God, that he, if, that he was not good, then the only place he could be getting his power from was Beelzebub, devil. Now, that wasn't true. But if there are really only two sides in this battle, and if Jesus isn't on the side of Satan, in fact, Jesus has bound Satan, then there's another implication that has to be drawn out here. If Jesus is truly on the side of God, then there is a dire warning here for the Pharisees, all those who oppose Jesus. This brings us to the third section where Jesus speaks of blaspheming here in verses 30 through 32. In verse 30, Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now notice here, Jesus is, again, he's using the same basic logic as the Pharisees. The Pharisees said, well, if this man is not good, this man is not, uh, if he is not on the side of God in their estimation, then he must be on the side of the devil. Well, again, the same logic, there's only two sides here, but Jesus has turned the tables of the direction of the logic. If Jesus truly is bringing the kingdom of God by the Spirit of God, then that means that anyone who is not with him will be scattered. That means, in other words, that to oppose Jesus is to oppose God himself. There will be no hope, just like a few of the Amalekites escaped from David. So anyone who, who, who faces, opposes Jesus will be scattered, will be destroyed. Ultimately, that wrath is going to come from everyone. What David did in part, Jesus will do in full. That's the idea that Jesus is getting at here. And so after this, Jesus says what has been a notoriously difficult passage interpret throughout the, the Christian church, but let's look at it together this morning. 
hopefully get some clarity from what Jesus is and isn't saying. Verse 31 to 32, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, how are we to understand this? Well, Grant Osborne, a commentator, says the key here is understanding the role of the Spirit. The role of the Spirit is the active force of God in the world, is the personal agent of God in the world. It is one thing Jesus is saying to misunderstand who he is, who Jesus is. That sin would be forgiven. Blindness to the veiled glory of the Son of Man, of Jesus, is one thing. But to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, the one who is the power of Jesus, well, that is to blaspheme God himself blaspheme God fully, to blaspheme God directly. It's not merely to be blind to Jesus, but it is deliberate, hardened, eyes wide opened opposition to God himself. Not merely to do what you know to be wrong. All of us do that. It is rather to do wrong because you know it is wrong. It's an opposition to God. And it's to know the Holy Spirit is bringing God's work of salvation into the world and to refuse it outright knowingly. In the Old Testament, these were called the high-handed sins. It's to lift your hand against God in heaven and to defy him openly. 1 Timothy 4 verse 12, Paul calls it a seared conscience. In 1 John 5 verse 16, the apostle John calls this the sin that leads to death. There's absolutely no hope here. The next question that always raised from this, why commit it to sin? Is this something that I have done here? Is there any hope for me? I've opposed the work of God at times. Is there any hope for me, or am I already disqualified because I've somehow blasphemed the Holy Spirit? If you're seriously wrestling with this question, you're concerned about that question, that's actually a sign that you have not committed this sin. Now, you're not necessarily safe. There are other sins that you may commit. But it's not necessarily this sin. Because if you had committed this sin, the whole point is that you would not want hope from Jesus. And even if it were offered to you directly, you would not take it. If that's the case, if this is not something that anyone is really concerned, who, who wants God's salvation could do, how then as Christians are we to hear this word? What are we to glean from what Jesus offers us here? Anytime we come across warnings like this, these are warnings that Jesus uses as the good shepherd to drive his sheep back to safety. To safety. It's to say there's danger ahead. Turn back now. Don't persist in your unbelief and hardness of heart. Turn back to safety by repentance from your sin and faith in Christ. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, says this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have come to share in Christ. Indeed, we hold our original confidence firm at the end. We need to see this. And we need to be concerned about it. But let me give you an illustration to help us to see what this kind of hardening would look like. One of the places where we see this kind of hardening is actually, again, in the story of David. 
not in David himself, but rather in the life of Saul. I mentioned earlier that 1 Samuel ends with the story of David. The last story of David is when David is at his lowest. But then we see him rising up, strengthening himself in the Lord as God, and then rising up and, and liberating the captives who've been taken into a captivity. That's not actually the final story in the, in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel actually ends with the story of the death of Saul and because of Saul's sin, the death of Saul's son, Jonathan, in battle. Even before that, right before that, we read of Saul, before he dies, making a last-ditch effort to save himself and to save his kingdom. And no, at that point, Saul does not turn back to the Lord and say, Lord, I have sinned, forgive me, show me how I may have some salvation, even though I have messed so many things up. Rather than repenting and turning to the Lord, Saul goes to a witch. Saul goes to someone who is given over to dark, demonic, oppressive forces and consults this evil, supernatural power rather than the power of God. And she asks this witch to summon Samuel, the prophet, up from the dead to give him some sense of what to do. But when this witch does this, she's alarmed to learn that, in fact, this has been the king talking to her this whole time. Saul says not to worry about it. He wants to talk to Samuel. And Samuel tells him that the Lord has, in fact, turned against him and become his enemy, something that he told Saul during his lifetime. And Samuel reminds him that the Lord had, first of all, torn the kingdom and had given it to David, but now Saul will die in battle. He leaves a dire word of warning with Saul, but even here, Saul does not repent from it. He's heard a final judgment, but he doesn't repent. He doesn't go back to the Lord. Instead, even as a, last, as a last resort, he doesn't turn to the Lord. He only despairs and dies. This is what Jesus is talking about here. This is what this blasphemy against the Spirit looks like. It is an utter unwillingness to repent and believe, an utter unwillingness to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in when it, you have no other hope anywhere else. Pharisees, even if Jesus had offered himself to them as their last hope, they would have rejected him. And Jesus is saying, by rejecting his work of casting out the demons, that's exactly... How do we then apply this whole story to our own life? Well, thinking about what Jesus has told us as a whole, the application this morning is this, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. In this passage, we learn, first of all, that Jesus has bound Satan, strong man, so that Satan is vulnerable and cannot protect his own house. Secondly, Jesus has explained that he is now plundering Satan's house. And if Jesus bound Satan in part by defeating him at his temptation, so much more so has Jesus defeated Satan forever at the cross. In fact, in, in John chapter 13, Jesus looks up to heaven and says, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus went to the cross. He did so to bind Satan and to cast him out of this world. Certainly, effect is still felt, but he no longer has the power that he once had to roam wherever he would to hold all the nations under his feet. Because right now, Jesus has said, through him, the Holy Spirit is advancing the kingdom of God to drive Satan's kingdom utterly and entirely out of this world. And if this is the work of the Spirit of God, 
lift up and exalt Jesus Christ in the gospel, then what the rest of the scriptures tell us is that we must therefore walk by Apostle Paul writes this in Galatians 5, verse 16. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He lists out the desires of the flesh. Then in Galatians 5, verse 21, a few verses later, he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, the same kingdom of God Jesus speaks of in our passage. See, the kingdom of God is where the rule and the reign of the Spirit has full sway. And wherever the Spirit, who is the Lord, reigns in this world, people bear the fruit of the Spirit. And that's what Paul talks about next. Galatians 5, verses 22-24. Walk in the Spirit. This is what it will look like. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, it's peace, it's patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh its passions and desires. There's so much confusion about what it would mean to walk by the Spirit. But Jesus in our passage and, and Paul in Galatians chapter 5 clarify exactly what this would mean. To walk by the Spirit would mean that someone would be delivered from the domain of darkness as a strong man is bound and as the house of that strong man is plundered by Jesus Christ, our liberator, that we might be transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The first part of what it means to walk by the Spirit, it means to be liberated from our sins. Because again, not only did Jesus gain victory at his temptation, gain victory when he went to the cross, when he was raised up then after death from the dead, because there Jesus suffered and bled and died to atone for your sins. And when he rose, he rose vindicated by his own perfect righteousness so that he frees you and the claim that Satan had on you because of the sin of your first father, Adam, and because of your own sin. Jesus, now plundering from the strong man's house, liberating us from his captivity. Even this morning, Jesus is plundering Satan's household to free sinners by faith in him. This morning, if you've never come to know Jesus as your Savior, this gospel, that all those who look to Jesus in faith can be saved is for you. Oh, sinner, come out of your bondage. Jesus Christ died to make you free. Come to freedom through faith in Christ. This is all held out to you in the gospel of our Savior. The second thing this would mean is that Jesus has begun to heal us. Again, this whole story is about how Jesus heals a demon-oppressed man from his blindness and muteness so that he may speak and see the same thing happens to us spiritually. When Jesus liberates sinners, he begins to heal us. So that the corruption that affects our entire person, so that we are spiritually blind, so that we are spiritually depraved in our desires, Jesus begins to heal that corruption and give us new life, new thinking, new desires, new sight, eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe. To walk then by the Spirit is for the kingdom of God to gain increasing mastery over you in every area of your life. For the fruit of the Spirit to bud, blossom, flower, mature, and ripen in your soul. To grow in the liberty of love, the purpose for which Christ died to set us free. It is to live the life for which you were created, to enjoy God and to glorify Him ever. 
The warning that Jesus gives is so severe. Please listen, do not harden your hearts. Jesus truly is king. The Holy Spirit is truly the personal agent of God's power in this world. Build up the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And anyone who is not with Jesus is against him. And anyone who is not with Jesus will ultimately be scattered in judgment. The day is coming when Jesus Christ will return to consummate his kingdom, to judge the world. Will he embrace you on that day or cast you off? The gospel holds the solution to this. Take care, brothers, therefore, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This morning, if you turn to faith in Jesus Christ, you have not, you cannot have committed the unpardonable, the unforgivable sin. This morning, if you increasingly harden your heart, you say, I see it and I don't want it, Jesus says that you are in Don't turn yourself against Jesus. Instead, look to the gracious gift that he offers you. Turn to him in faith. Pray for him. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us Jesus Christ and him crucified. We pray that you would, by your Spirit, enable us to walk by the Spirit and to know Jesus for salvation. We pray that if there is any here who has not yet turned to Christ, that you would, by your Spirit, work faith him or her, to give this person trust and repentance of their sin, trust in Jesus, the power of your spirit and by the word that you've given us here this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name.